Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. My name is Mickey. I'm a worship arts coordinator at Baylife Church. And I'm Travis, and I'm the teaching pastor at Baylife Church. And we want to welcome you to the Stone Table. It's good to be good to be here live from the office. Live from the office, not from the stone table. We're live from the IKEA particle board yeah. uh, Which table. We technically don't even have a real stone table. It's, it's a true. plastic table yeah. in our home, it's which true. we've been recording our episodes uh, from. But today we are in the office of Bay Lake Church. And why is that, Travis? It's because we've been driven from our home by a <laughs> swarm of termites. And uh, our house is getting tented for the next three days. Yes. And uh, for anybody who's ever had their home tented for termites, you know that there's a bunch of things you have to do to prepare your house. and your. Yep. Uh, I, they didn't tell us to take the microphones out of the house but I, I don't know. I feel case. like like we talk into these and if they get poison on them, I don't, right. I'm not trying to get sick in the middle of a podcast. <gasps> so true. So you know what we do have to take out of the house though? What do we have to take out of the house? Our, I know. Ourselves and ourselves. our cat, Augustine. We, yeah. Um, he, he's going on a journey. He little is. Little does he know. He's going on a little trip to uh, Abuela and Abuelos. Um, this is true. He has never been to their house before um, and he's never met their cat, Candy, either, mm-hmm. which is technically my cat. So it's um, like his stepsister? Yes, yeah. yes. So uh, Augustine, and the two of us will be moving into my parents' house for the next few week, few days. Few days. Not I was weeks. Say, a few Whoa. weeks. Wow. That would you be know detrimental. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, days. Um, and so, in preparation for that, uh, we have given Sir Augustine a bath. Yeah. And, and okay, so we should probably explain why we have to give our cat a bath because yeah. I mean the the general sort of idea is that cats are cleaner than dogs and mm-hmm. they take care of themselves a little bit better. And I would have agreed with that before until, Augustine. Until Augie. He's gross. He here's the thing. You know, we can't totally shame the poor boy, right? Because he knows the difference between bad smells and good smells okay, right that's he, fair he yeah. knows the difference between dirty and clean and we know this because he does not like the smell of coffee for example right he tries to bury it like it's like it's feces that's right yep so we know he doesn't like that and so whatever he thinks smells bad he'll try to bury it if we spill anything on the kitchen floor um and he doesn't like the smell of it he'll try to bury that too that's true and yeah. so he he definitely knows the difference between clean and dirty the problem is, um, is that he's kind of a messy eater. And so whenever he gets food on himself, uh, it kind of starts to stink him up a little bit. Mm-hmm. One time Travis gave him wet food and oh my gosh, it made him smell so bad. Yeah, he because was then, disgusting. But then he'll like lick himself and he just gets food everywhere. He's just very messy. Yeah. See, here's the thing though. Like, I mean, the fact that he knows the difference between what smells good and smells bad, it further increases his guilt, right? He's he has right, even less right. of an excuse to smell bad because he knows better. Yeah. The the problem is, is days will go by, maybe a week, maybe two weeks, and the smell is just kind of getting worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And when he sits down to clean himself, he's so grossed out about how, about how he smells right. that he won't finish cleaning himself. I know. So it's, we have to give him baths. Yeah. We actually started giving him baths like a few months ago, and surprisingly, he enjoys it. 
It's he weird. En- he enjoys yeah. sitting in a warm bath. There <laughs> seems to be very little that this cat loves in life. He's super aggressive, but baths yeah. are like the one time when he's at right. peace. And and the thing is, he he gets a little nervous mm-hmm. at first, sure. and then he gets used to it, and he's fine. Yeah. And, and I think he he enjoys smelling nice. It, he does. Is yeah. why I think he he sits through baths. Yeah. So he, he's he knows come to like them. Yeah. And right. and obviously we've got to put the cat in the car, and we don't want to stink up the car. Nor do or we want to stink up house. your parents' house. And so, yeah, termites have really thrown off our rhythm in yep. a lot of ways. And so <laughs> we're uh, we're recording from the office instead of the house. But this episode, I think, is going to be awesome. That's right, Travis. So today we are sitting down with Dr. Soong Chan Ra about his book, Prophetic Lament. Yeah, and Soong Chan has been uh, a number of different things over the years. Uh, we'll get into this in the interview, but he's helped plant four different churches. He serves as a seminary professor. He's also written a number of books in addition to Prophetic Lament. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote The Next Evangelicalism, and he also co-authored the book, Unsettling Truth along with Mark Charles, which is his most recent book. Uh, but in this interview, we talk specifically about Soong Chan's meditation on the Book of Lamentations, this book, Prophetic Lament. Yeah, and and one of my favorite parts about our conversation is how uh, he really refers to uh, lamenting as a, a discipline, mm, right? Yeah. And that we, we lose part of our spiritual formation if we're not disciplined and we don't practice le- uh, lamenting. Yeah. And so this book uh, is drawing from the Book of Lamentations in the Old Testament, and I think uh, he does it in such a beautiful way that connects uh, uh, lamenting and j- just the 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 practice of that and how it helps our Christian life mm-hmm. and really connects that to uh, Jesus in the right. New Testament and yeah. so uh, he just gives us a very clear and a very good picture of how the entirety of the the word uh, mm-hmm. is is just necessary for us to understand Jesus mm-hmm. and how we can lament. Properly, yeah. Properly, and, and yeah. I, and I love in this conversation how he brings this idea of lament to bear on some of the conversations we're having as a society about Absolutely. issues of racial justice. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a great conversation that I'm I was I was so excited yeah. to to have and just so grateful for as we're looking back on it. Yes. So we can't wait to share it with you. Uh, with that being said, I'm Travis and I'm Mickey and this is the Stone Table. Well, Sung Chan, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. We are so excited to be sitting down and talking with you about your book, Prophetic Lament. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's what I know just from kind of following your journey over the years is that you've, you've worn a lot of different hats over the course of your <laughs> career. Um, you're currently serving as a seminary professor. You're an author. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, you were a church planter. And um, one of the things that I know just from having some other friends in kind of the church planting world is, is that it's, it's this beautiful, challenging, heartbreaking, and sometimes funny endeavor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So one of our friends tell, uh, tells the story of, you know, being in his first year of church planting and passing the offering plate around and it it coming back to him. And the only thing in the offering plate was a Wendy's coupon. Um, (laughs) And so he says like, you, you know, you're really church planting when all you get for the offering is a Wendy's coupon. And That's so, right. That's so, we, right. so we wanted to hear, do you have any, any funny stories or anything crazy happen when you were first church planting? <laughs> this is, these are the sort of things that we find really funny. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I was, uh, I've, I've actually been involved in four different church plants. Wow. Oh, cool. Um, and I was part of a church plant 
way back in the day. This is now coming up on more than 30 years of an immigrant Korean church that uh, planted in the D.C. area. Uh, and then a few years later, that church uh, supported me as I planted the church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And that's mm. probably the one I'm most connected with. I was the pastor there for 10 years. Uh, and that church ended up uh, uh, trying to plant two other churches on top of that. Uh, so in that sense, I was connected with four different church plants. Wow. Uh, the story, of course, is um, after you do your last church plant, you you'd say that you have one more left in you. You always have <laughs> one more church plant. Yeah. And that's yeah. how you're going to go out in a blaze of glory because church mm-hmm. planting doesn't leave your, your bloodstream that, yeah. that quickly. Um, I do remember in the very first church plant I was a part of, this is back in uh, many, many years ago down in Washington, D.C. I was, I was 22 years old. I was part of a church planning team, uh, was the worship leader for that church plant. And I remember in the early stages, just kind of like uh, after church, you know, the five of us who helped to start to plant the church, just kind of hanging around and, you know, being in a, in a, in a, uh, in, in a living room, just kind of talking about the day. And then after that, going out to play a, a game of hoops. And, um, and, and that was just kind of those moments when in the early stages, when you can do that kind of the, the community bond that develops. I saw this in my church plan in Cambridge as well. Mm. Uh, but then about a few years later, when the church has grown and things are a little bit different and things are a little more chaotic, uh, you get this nostalgia. Do you remember a couple of years ago when we actually had time to <laughs> be friends hang out? And, yeah. Yeah, be yeah. friends and hang out and play basketball after church? Those are the things that things that you really cherish when you're planning a church. Yeah. So yeah. I would say the church planners out there, you know, you're doing a great work, you're doing God's <laughs> calling and there's some good work to be done, but really cherish those early moments when it's just the five of you in a living room somewhere, when <laughs> yeah. it's just, you know, 10 or 12 of you in a yeah. small circle circle uh, in the basement of a, of a church building trying to pray together about the, the church plant that is to come. Mm. Um, don't look towards the when it becomes a couple hundred or a thousand or whatever you're planning on. Uh, really cherish those moments when it's the five or ten of you in a, mm. in a small apartment somewhere praying for God's uh, move among you. Mm. Yeah, Man, that's great. That's I, awesome. <laughs> I, I feel like the, the you've always got one more in you as yeah. you with relation to church planning is how I feel about like potato chips and french fries. Like I can always <laughs> eat. Right. I can oh always Always gosh. consume one more. Yeah, there's always one more fig Newton and one more <laughs> yeah. potato chip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's incredible yes. though. That's that's a great word of wisdom. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. So, Sung Chan, we wanted to talk to you about your book, Prophetic Lament. Uh, sure. It's an incredible book. Um, I'm so Thank glad you. that we... How did you find the book, So, Travis? actually, when it came out, uh, I was still on social media. I'm not anymore. Um, but uh-huh. Theological Twitter started posting about how yeah. good it was. And, <laughs> oh. and at the time, I was in the middle of some seminary classes. I didn't have time to read it. And then, uh, especially as the conversation around racial justice picked up in the yeah. last few months, yeah. I ordered a bunch of books on Amazon and I I remembered I heard that prophetic lament was really insightful and so I ordered it back over the summer Mm. and and then I was like man if you'll come on the podcast then this would be this would be incredible so yeah yeah, so we, we yeah, so we found it super helpful and it's just a, an incredible meditation on the book of Lamentations. And from what I understand, from what I read in the beginning pages of the book, is that this actually started as a sermon series for your <laughs> yeah. church plant. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about how this came about? Sure. Yeah, it's actually interesting that it is connected to a church plant and uh planted the church back in nineteen ninety-six. And um, I had been a campus minister for uh, five plus years before that, and I had specifically worked with MIT students. And the church in Cambridge was, you know, about half a mile from MIT and half a mile from Harvard. 
So we were smack dab in the middle of these incredibly prestigious, you know, uh, academically rigorous world-class universities. And of course, the students that were at Harvard and MIT and other schools in that area, BU, Boston College, Tufts, Wellesley, just some of the best schools in, in the world are found in the, in the Boston, Cambridge area. Mm-hmm. And what I realized is I was working with these uh, um, uh, college students through university and also as I was planning, getting ready to plant a church, is that many of them had never really encountered failure in their life. Oh, right? I mean, man. they're 19, 20 years old. They had gotten to MIT and Harvard because they had done everything well. Perfect mm. scores in the SATs. They were class president. You know, they've done everything that, you know, got them to where they were in life in a very young age. They had kind of accomplished these huge things. Mm. And so as I was thinking about, I want to plant a church that is really connected to the city. Uh, this was an intentionally urban church plant. This was an intentionally multi-ethnic, cross-cultural cross-social, cross-economic lines, church plant. Mm. And in order for that to work, I realized that these individuals who had experienced so much success uh, needed to realize that the Bible isn't always about winning all the time. Mm. And the Bible Mm. isn't always about uh, getting accolades for your your, uh, successes, Uh, which is, again, most of what uh, these uh, very bright students and young adults had experienced all their life. Uh, so the church plant needed a, a what I what I would call now a theological corrective to their dominant narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, their dominant narrative was they were exceptional, they were successful, they were triumphant, and they were going to fix the world with their know-how and ingenuity. And you know their MIT and Harvard degrees were going to fix all of the urban problems of Boston. Yeah. Um, and L- Lamentations proved to be that corrective. Mm-hmm. It was the balance to um, what I think can be a harmful, uh, especially in ministry, where kind of the self-elevation, uh, the self-perception of exceptionalism can actually be very harmful in ministry. And Lamentations was the necessary balance, uh, the necessary uh, biblical corrective to what I thought was a, what I thought could be a very significant theological dysfunction. So um, we did like one opening service as, as is typical. Sure. Uh, and mm-hmm. that was when out of town folks came and my family came and things like that. But the first sermon series we launched into after that, after we did kind of the opening round of services was actually the book of lamentations. That's such so, a, such a bold move yeah, to launch a awesome. church plant. Yeah. Well, I teach church planning now as a professor and, you know, I would never teach that to my students (laughs) (laughs) to start your church plan off with six weeks of lamenting. uh, It's just not, you know, a secret sensitive church growth model. Um, But I found that that was absolutely essential in the Mm. formation of the value system of our church, Mm. uh, that we begin not with our sense of we can fix the world's problems, but we get, we get, we begin with a sense of, boy, we're broken people. Boy, our world is broken. Boy, we need God desperately. Um, Mm. And that's a really good place to start a church plant. Not look at all of us smart people hanging out with the opportunity and capacity to change the world, but look at us broken folks living in a broken world, needing a a God to save us. Wow. That's incredible. That's great. And and it sort of sets your church up to understand from the very beginning, it's dependence on God's grace and, and his mercy. So that's, yes, that's a bold move, but but I think it's hey, it's incredible. I'm so yeah. like that that if I plant a church, I'm going to start with lamentations. <laughs> um, Man. So speaking of lamentations, this is kind of a, a neglected book in scripture. Um, one of the things I do here at Bay Life is I teach some of our Sunday school theology classes, and every time I do an overview of the Old Testament and we get to lamentations. 
I'm astounded at at how little people know about it. And honestly, when I first taught the class, I was astounded at how little I knew about it. Mm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's just neglected. And and maybe it's not the same in the global church, but certainly in the American church, Lamentations Mm -hmm. is overlooked. And I'm sure that there are going to be many people who don't really even know how it fits into the Bible storyline. So could you help orient us as we talk about Lamentations? What's going on in the narrative of scripture when this book's written? Sure. And we do have to recognize, and you mentioned the global church, that we do have biases in the American church. And in the Western church, we have biases. And one of the the most noticeable biases for me is our obsession with the epistles. Now, I'm not saying the epistles are bad. I'm not saying the epistles are, you know, are not worth studying. But boy, do we spend a lot of time in them. Mm, (laughs) You know, the writings of Paul, especially. Uh, Now, again, I love the the Pauline epistles, but um, do we really need to spend you know, six years in the Pauline epistles and then one uh, sermon in the Psalms every once in a while. Right. Uh, That seems like an imbalance. Um, Mm. And that's just our kind of Western mindset. Uh, We like the kind of didactic, almost um, like it's, 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 it's like a Western philosophical approach to theology. Right. Mm, I mean, it gives kind of a clear, linear, logical. And of course, in Western thought, that's the way we think. And, you know, Paul is writing to a Greco-Roman audience. So and that's the that's our inheritance philosophically. Uh, So what we do is we tend to overemphasize certain books of the Bible Mm. um, and underemphasize other books of the Bible. And that's true, not just in certain books of the Bible. For example, the Old Testament as a whole is very much neglected. Uh, Wisdom literature in the Old Testament is extremely neglected. Um, But what I pointed out was that lament as a genre of literature, a genre of communication in the whole Bible is oftentimes overlooked as well. And that, again, betrays our kind of Western American bias against other forms of communications besides the linear didactic approaches that we see in the Pauline literature. So what we see then in the Old Testament with lament is that lament is the appropriate response that emerges out of people who are suffering and in pain. Mm. And it is an appropriate response because of the reality of suffering and pain. Mm. And because as Americans, we don't like to talk about suffering and pain. We want to get over it very quickly. Uh, we don't want to know that there people have died or people are, st- are, are hurting or, or that people are in pain. Um, I'll say the way we deal with depression in the church is pretty indicative of that. We want people to get over it. Right. The way we deal yeah. with grief, the loss of life, uh, we're talking right now about at this point uh, when this when we're recording this, uh, 210,000 people who have died of COVID, yeah. and yet we don't want to talk about that. We want to move on. We want to mm. gloss over the number of deaths um, when uh, so many have died at the uh, at uh, especially those uh, black bodies and, and black yeah. lives who've been uh, who have been lost throughout our nation's history. We don't want to talk about that. We want to just kind of move on. And what lament does is it calls us to recognize the reality of our brokenness, Mm. the reality of our pain, the reality of how sinful we are and how that has led us to this this profound brokenness. Um, And so many of us in the American church avoid these kinds of places, which calls us to recognize how profound our brokenness is. We want to get to, well, Paul tells us the three steps to growing bigger uh, and a better Mm -hmm. person is X, Y, and Z. Those things make more sense to us than just staying in the poetic, emotional brokenness Mm. that lament often talks about. I'm just so glad that you mentioned that because there are so many factors that lead to us kind of 
suppressing that that need yeah. the the discipline of lamenting you know we don't want to cope yeah. with things we we want to gloss over things and we want it to yeah. be over with um and i, I think it's our inclination as humans yeah. especially in western culture is yes. we just kind of want to move on to all right let's think of something happy now let's yes. try not to think yes. about things that are um that have been painful mm-hmm. we suppress pain well even when we talk about something like a funeral i know we were talking about this last right. night like yeah. many people in the, even in circles that i run in don't want to call it a funeral they want to call it a celebration of life right like, right. right even we, death is not actually something we mourn right. we, we celebrate instead right so i mean this is the again the tendency to gloss over a skip over lament and what i noted is that if you look at the worship life of of america mm. uh, you'll see repeatedly when it comes time Time to lament in the church calendar or for different stages in the church's life, uh, people skip over it. Um, mm. And this was so seen in the hymnals, which tend to be overrepresentative of praise songs, which yes. is good, uh, but it lacks the lament songs. So in the Bible and the Psalms, uh, 60% of the Psalms are Psalms of celebration and praise mm. and victory, but 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament about pain and suffering. Yeah. And we tend to overemphasize the Psalms of praise. So uh, an example that, that's kind of a pet peeve of mine is when I go to a Good Friday service and they end the Good Friday service with happy Oh, isn't life wonderful? No, mm. Jesus has died and he's in right. the tomb. <laughs> yeah. That's it's a Friday that, you know, yeah. yes, on Sunday, absolutely. Jump up and down because Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. Yeah. But on Friday, it is this it is not a celebration of life, it is the reality of death that mm. the savior that we thought was going to save the world died in a way that did not seem fitting. And we mourn that and we lament yeah. that. And then we can celebrate because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed on Sunday, Easter Sunday. Mm. Uh, but again, it, it, it kind of betrays a, a, a significant loss in our theology, in our understanding of the world and the understanding of who God is to say, we've got to celebrate all the time. We don't get to celebration sometimes until we go through lament. We see this mm. in the Bible over and over again. In order to get to God is good, God is wonderful, we have to recognize Actually, we're struggling and God took us out of that struggle. That's why he's so good. That's why he's so wonderful. But we've got to acknowledge, boy, we are broken right now and we want God to rescue us from that. Man, that's, that's a great example. The yeah. Good Friday to Easter. Yeah. And, and I feel so that true. that impulse, even like I've led our Good Friday service here for years and I'm always like, yeah. okay, I need to say something happy at some yeah. point here. And so I feel the impulse even in my own heart to, that's right. To that's right. And, and pastors, this is, this is kind of the way we become wired in American mm. churches um, to, to not disappoint our congregation uh, in that yeah. way, to say, right. we want our congregation to feel good about the church, feel good about me as a pastor, feel good about you know their community. Uh, but there are times when the brokenness of our world intrudes upon the, the, our desire to feel good about things. And yeah. that's not a bad thing. That's what lament is, is challenging us to say. It's not necessarily bad uh, to recognize that our world is broken. It's actually maybe a step towards our growth and our transformation. Mm. Yeah, there's a, there's a theologian and author named Zach Eswin, and he says to be sad about a sad thing is wise. And I, I think that yeah. there's great value in that. And Lamentations is a book that helps us learn uh, wisdom in the face of, of sadness right. and grief. And one of the things that you highlight in your book is that it, it reflects the voice of the prophet Jeremiah, yeah. but also there's a plurality of voices in Lamentations. That, That's right. That it's almost the whole city 
crying out in lament, and yeah. uh, and that I think that means something for the church. And you you draw on this that that lament can't fully be expressed by just one person. We need the whole diversity yes. of a community yes. to yes. express it. And I know there was some things about that section that you loved as well. Yeah, I love that you highlighted the the feminine voice in Lamentations yes. as well. I thought that was so valuable. And, and mm. I, I wanted to ask you to unpack these voices. What does this mean for us as we yeah. read Lamentations? Yeah, so I, I argue in the book that Lamentations is probably the most feminine book of the Bible, yeah. even more so than Esther and Ruth. I mean, Esther and Ruth are beautiful passages, uh, but the it's not really in their voice. It's kind of like a third-person observer right, right. of Esther and Ruth. Lamentation is actually the voice of women crying out. Mm-hmm. And this goes to the authorship that you were talking about a little bit earlier, that uh, who wrote the book of Lamentations? Now, historically, traditionally, it's been attributed to Jeremiah. Uh, we know this because Jeremiah was one of the few uh, literate people who were allowed to stay right. after the exile. And so he was maybe possibly the only person who could read or write. So Lamentations is clearly a well-written book. It follows some patterns that show that, yeah, this is written by someone who could read or write. Um, but the, the main problem is that even if Jeremiah was the only person that could write the book of Lamentations, um, the writing style is just so different. So yeah. we know Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah. Sure. And then you read Jeremiah and you compare that to Lamentations. And it's like, whoa, this is just two different writing styles. And mm-hmm. the joke that I've used is one sounds like Shakespeare. The other sounds like Tupac. Now, <laughs> which is which is Tupac. Writers. Which is Tupac and which is <laughs> well, Shakespeare. That's up to you. <laughs> Both are great writers. It's just the styles of writing are really different. So you yeah. would never mix the two up. And so, well, what's the answer? And and you've alluded to it, which is what Jeremiah does. He is the writer, as in he is the editor and curator of the stories. Uh, And what happens is after the exile, after Jerusalem falls and the city is devastated, all the literate, all the leaders have been taken away. Jeremiah, possibly the only literate person left, goes to the city gate, which is similar to the town hall. And all the people come out and they start telling their stories Mm -hmm. of their pain and their suffering. And because of the exile, the only ones left would have been the widows, the orphans, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick, those who could not rebuild Jerusalem, not in the way that they wanted to. Uh, And so Jeremiah is there, and he writes down their stories. Mm. And this is the most beautiful thing about Lamentations, I think. It's that Jeremiah, who is the literate, who is the privileged, who is the prophet with the education, uh, who is the person who can and should, in some sense, be the loudest voice in that in that crowd actually be is quiet and gets out of the way Mm. Um, that's that's a beautiful image of someone who is privileged someone who has the power someone who has the literacy and the capacity actually said no what we need to do right now in the midst of suffering and pain is not to hear from the privileged voice but to hear from those that have suffered the most. And in this case, it turns out to be uh, the widows, the women, the, the, the moms who have lost their children. Yeah. And that's why Lamentations is just such a powerful, powerful book because it really does call upon hearing the voices that we have previously marginalized in silence. So I want 
wanted to ask you, um, what what do you think that we lose when we in our, in our formation, our spiritual formation, yeah. when we neglect things like lament? What are some things that we we miss out on when we are not disciplined in yeah. lamenting? Yeah. Well, I, I argue that our, our theology is incomplete when we don't lament. Mm. And because lament is truth-telling, and lament gives a perspective that is oftentimes lost in our society, um, we lose our sense of injustice in the world. Mm. Because lament points towards injustice. Lament points towards brokenness in the world and a suffering and pain that is in the world. So lament would say, for example, um, the loss of black lives is significant not just yeah. in the moment where black lives are being killed, but black lives throughout history have right. been murdered, have been enslaved, have been raped on plantations, have been suppressed over and over again, have been lynched and, and killed. Uh, this is a long history. And if we don't lament that, uh, we can't really recognize the injustice in our history. We just jump to, oh, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it great? America's great. Well, actually, there's some stuff in our history that we've got to deal with. And Absolutely, so yeah. lament is a truth-telling reveals injustice. And if we don't understand injustice, then we don't understand God's justice. And this is some of the shortcoming of a nation that, and, a, and a church in our nation that refuses to engage in the truth of human brokenness. Mm. We end up not being able to address injustice with justice, the justice of God, because we can't even see injustice right in front of our faces. Man, so true. that's so, so true. And that, that kind of brings me to another question that I wanted to ask around this. Obviously, we're living in a moment in which our nation is having really significant conversations around uh, both our, our history and our, our yeah. present um, experience of racial injustice. And so I'm just wondering, how, how does Lamentation speak to this moment as we're having this conversation? How can it, how can it guide yeah. us as we yeah. attempt to, to properly lament the injustice in our society? Yeah, so my most recent book was co-authored with Mark Charles, who's a Native American uh, Navajo activist, mm. uh, independent candidate for president of the United States as well. Oh, nice. Uh, okay. But uh, Mark and I... Um, uh, became friends uh, through a number of kind of conferences and places and gatherings and academic gatherings that we kind of would run into each other and talk to one another. And oftentimes we would even speak back to back on certain uh, conferences and realize his work on the doctrine of discovery, which is the history of oppression uh, for people of color, but Native Americans in particular. Mm. And my work on lament was actually coinciding, that they were mm. kind of overlapping. And so one of the things that we recognize is that we don't tell the truth. We don't understand our history. Uh, we don't understand the narrative of America well, and therefore we can't address that. So the, the example that we give in the book, that I give in the book in this section, is of um, the history of systems that keep re-perpetuating. Yeah. So the most evil system in American society in history is probably slavery. Slavery is the most evil institution. And that system was torn down. It was broken down by the Civil War, by the Emancipation Proclamation, by Juneteenth. These are the things that tore down the system of slavery. But the system of slavery, sadly, was replaced by another system that was just as evil, Jim Crow. And Jim Crow was effective in suppressing African-American economic growth. It, was, uh, it suppressed the economic, uh, the right to vote for many African-Americans. Uh, it created a, a caste system in the United States. So Jim Crow was almost as effective as slavery. Mm. Uh, but then that system was torn down by the Civil Rights Movement and the Voting Rights Act. But that system was replaced by the new Jim Crow. 
which incarcerates mass numbers of African-American men in particular, uh, gerrymandering, voter suppression, and so that we still have a system of oppression because these systems keep rebuilding themselves. Mm. And what I argue is that these systems keep rebuilding themselves, the engines of oppression keep rebuilding themselves because the fuel that fueled these engines of oppression never got dealt with. Mm. So white supremacy, white centrality, American exceptionalism fueled slavery. And even after the engine of slavery was taken, torn down, that fuel found a way to express itself in Jim Crow. And then even after Jim Crow was torn down, the fuel found a way to express itself in the new Jim Crow. And so what we have to deal with are not just the systems that are broken and, of course, the individuals that are broken in that system, but these narratives, this imagination, this worldview, these assumptions that continue to fuel these systems. Mm. And the only way to beat a narrative and worldview and value system is not to join that value system, but to create new ones. And that's what lament does. Yeah. It creates a counter narrative, a counter spiritual practice, because the ones in the world are so powerful yeah. that you can't fix it with more of that same. You have to create counter narrative. So the spiritual practice of lament is the counterweight. It's the counter momentum that goes against the dysfunctional momentum that is in our society. Mm. Oh, man, that's so good. Um, w- one of the other things I wanted to just ask you about uh, as it relates to the book is uh, Lamentations 2, right? Yeah. Where where the uh, Jeremiah or, or the voices he's collecting yeah. attribute so much of the horror of what's happened in the fall of Jerusalem to to Yahweh you know they say you're the one who's done this yeah and and you would think for somebody who's lamenting that that would actually be even worse and yet in in the book you kind of argue that that's a source of hope for people so yeah so how does God's sovereignty when we're lamenting injustice and we're lamenting uh being sad about sad things in wisdom how does God's sovereignty comfort us in the face of something like that yeah so actually a couple of things about the the role of the prophet narrator uh, Jeremiah in this uh in this uh in this book uh one is that uh, Jeremiah does something not only in lamentations but in the book of Jeremiah itself uh Jeremiah does something very significant which is he takes on himself the sins of his people mm. um now if there's one person who is without sin in this kind of scenario it's Jeremiah because right. he's stayed faithful to Yahweh. He has actually been the one that has said, you know, the judgment of Yahweh is coming. This is why we deserve the judgment. Uh, so if there's one person in the entire city of Jerusalem, an entire nation of Israel, who is not guilty, it would be Jeremiah. But he repeatedly says, not only we have sinned, O God, but I have sinned, O God. So that's, I think, an important lesson for us in the 21st century to be able to say not only we have sinned, O God, or they have sinned, O God, but I have sinned, O God. Mm -hmm. And so Jeremiah, as the prophet, is able to take on and express the sins of his people in a way that brings that kind of healing and justice and repentance. Uh, And to to what you're alluding to about um, the power of Jeremiah's uh, repentance um, and the power of Jeremiah's acknowledgement and the people's acknowledgement yeah. that God is sovereign in this scenario. What I point to is that if God is faithful to judge, and that's what Lamentations is, the result yeah. of God's judgment 
for all the sins of Israel for for centuries. Mm -hmm. This is not just, hey, out of the blue, God decides to judge. Repeatedly, God's people had sinned against God and uh, idolatry and disobedience. That was a pattern for centuries. And so Jeremiah has to recognize our brokenness and our sinfulness and our our judgment is 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 justified because of God's um, righteousness. So yeah. we have sinned. God judges. That mm. is a just and righteous judgment. Right. But here's the hope that I see in the middle of that, which is if God is faithful to judge, because he, that means he's faithful to his word. Mm. God said he would judge. He said it in Leviticus. He said it in Deuteronomy. He said it all throughout the prophetic literature. Right. I would judge sinfulness. If God is faithful to uh, to his um Hesed, the the faithfulness of God, the longstanding covenant loyalty of God. Um, if God is faithful to that, then God will be faithful to the other half, which is restoration Amen. and grace mm. and yes. mercy. And sometimes we forget that mm. that sometimes our our grace and mercy that we receive as a result of Jesus's death on the cross was because God was faithful to judge our sinfulness and brokenness. Wow. And he did it in a way that fell upon the person of Jesus. But the reality is uh, there was a need for judgment, mainly mm. because of my sin. There was a need for judgment, mainly because of Jerusalem's disobedience. God was faithful to judge, but God will also be faithful to forgive and offer grace and restoration but those are two sides of the same coin. Yeah. And I think we want to jump to God is going to save us and rescue us and forgive us without saying, but we need rescuing and forgiveness yeah. and yeah. God's grace. That yeah. part is also essential. Absolutely. And and toward the end of uh, the end of the book in, in the chapter ending on a minor key, you also uh, refer to Jesus. Uh, there's this quote yeah. that I really like uh, from that chapter. It says the story of lamentations is completed in the incarnate Jesus who comes to yes. dwell among human flesh in the body of the city. And you go on and say, since Jesus is the answer to the questions and lamentations, yes. Jesus must be understood well to understand those answers. And I love yes. that because <laughs> in Jesus, we find ourselves, we find that promise of, of restoration, restoration and yes. we see that, you know, as the people of God and we are able to make that connection from yes. what we read in Lamentations to what we see in the New Testament. And so I wanted to ask, what are some things about the incarnation that we need to yes. understand in order yes. to see it as an answer to the book of Lamentations? Yes, I mean, the, the whole of Scripture testifies to Jesus, right? I mean, you know, we have got to see um, the ways that, you know, Scripture is not just 66 discrete books that were thrown together. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a testimony, a, a witness to the person and life of Jesus. Um, and so even in the Psalms, when you have lament Psalms, they don't always resolve easily and quickly. Uh, sometimes some lament psalms are left open-ended. They don't have that kind of everything's right. okay now. And that's kind of the, the, the open chapter at the end of the book uh, or the cliffhanger at the end of the book. And the resolution of that is the person of Jesus uh, who embodies in his life, in his ministry, in his death and his resurrection and his return, embodies in who he is, the, the event of Jesus intruding into the world and the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the, and the story of Jesus. Uh, this is what um, lament resolves in and through. Um, and so if, if I'm looking at my ethic, for example, how do I live my life? Um, I live through the ethic of who Jesus is. 
right? So uh, that's why we got to go deeper into the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus. So, mm. for example, um, one of the things that I, I, I write about in my, in my understanding of Christology is that um, in the West, anyway, we focus so much on the death of Jesus, we skip over oftentimes the life of Jesus. So mm. true. Um, yeah. yeah. And then there are times that we are so focused on the resurrection of Jesus, we forget about the incarnation of Jesus. These are yeah. all kind of elements of the, of the story of Jesus. And sometimes that's actually very uh, culturally driven. Mm. So in the yeah. West where we live fairly in comfort, comfort and luxury and peace and tranquility, most of our lives, um, we want to understand Jesus in his death because that confounds us. Why would a Messiah have to suffer? So if you look at Western theology, the overemphasis and the obsession with why did Jesus have to die? Why yeah. did Jesus have to die? But if you go to like Latin America, uh, where they live death and suffering day to day, where their life is a place of struggle, then they don't need to know about the struggle of Jesus because they live that struggle of Jesus. They look towards the resurrection of Jesus mm. and the return of Jesus. Yeah. And that's why there is a liberative language uh, that comes out of Latin American theology. It's the belief that God on, is not only the God of my death and suffering, but God is also, because I'm living in that death and suffering now, God is also the hope for my future, the hope mm. of my resurrection, mm. the hope of, of his triumphant return. Yeah. And so that's why the language oftentimes in places like Latin America, uh, African-American communities or places where yeah. there has been profound suffering, the language is one of we need the resurrection. We need uh, the, the return of Christ. Um, and, and that's where uh, I think um, the whole canon of Jesus's life can inform us, not just one or two elements of it, but the whole story of Jesus's life becomes essential to our understanding of the resolution of lament. It's not just this one event, the death of Jesus on the cross. It is his entirety of his story that intrudes into our world. Yeah. And, and how important is it for uh, especially uh, American Christians to hear both the voices and the perspective and the uh, theological work of yeah. Christians outside of the West yeah. Uh, yes. So, Mickey, you studied theology in Argentina, which yeah. is totally different. Right. Yeah. It was totally different. And and, mm. and co different cultures encounter different things in their world, right? So yeah. in Latin America, there's definitely more evidence of death, evidence of witchcraft. Yes. There, there are so many other spiritual things going on that yes. maybe we don't get to see a whole lot of here in the, in the Western culture that we live in. But all around the world... They, they are living different contexts. And so mm -hmm. there is yes. so much wisdom to be, to be learned from other Christians around the world yes. who are dealing with very specific issues in mm -hmm. their context. And, and, and we can lament for them and empathize yes. and have compassion. And there's just so much wisdom to be drawn from uh, different Christians in different situations and circumstances around the world. I mean, that's the gift of the world we're living in right now. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, Christianity is is more outside of the West and outside of the United States than it is inside the United States. Right. American Christianity is, by all indications, in pretty pretty noticeable decline. Um, now we can say, "Oh, woe is us," and you know, you know, this is terrible, and it, it's not good. But the good news is, in Latin America, the church is just busting out. Yeah. In Africa, the church is growing incredibly, and in Asia, um, you know, if you look at the largest churches in the world, uh, the American church, the largest American church, doesn't even sniff the top ten. Wow. Mm. Uh, we're talking about the largest church in the world at one time was a million people. You heard that right. There was a million people at one church. Wow. Um, 
and their convenience services must have been really difficult was, to pull off. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, yeah, they, they had some logistical issues, but I think you <laughs> have like 10 services a day wow. in 10 different sites. This is uh, Paul Yonggi Cho's church, uh, the Full Gospel Church in Korea. Wow. So at their height, they were, they were estimated about a million people every Sunday. Wow. Now, my denomination is one of the fastest growing in the United States. It's the Evangelical Covenant Church. We're at about 300,000. Mm. So one of the fastest growing denominations in the United States is less than a third of one church in Korea. <laughs> That's kind of the disparity here we're yeah. talking about in terms of what's happening globally. Right. And so we can't say, oh, let's go teach them. We got to say, oh, let's go learn. Let's, yeah. let's, mm. let's, let's go and learn because something yes. is happening there. And one of the things you point to, there's an understanding of spirituality that we don't have in the West, in particular in America, that is very evident in Africa, Asia, and Latin America in particular. Yep. Um, we don't identify you know, kind of the spiritual powers and principalities that Ephesians speak of. Mm -hmm. But if you're in the midst of a region that is overwhelmed with witchcraft, or if you're in a region that is overwhelmed with the, with the drug trade, right. uh, if you're in a region that is overwhelmed with, uh, with the violence, um, then you, you call upon God to uh, rescue you, not only in your physical needs, but also in your spiritual needs. It's kind Absolutely. of a, it's kind of this total rescue of God that you desperately need here in the West, you know, we don't recognize um, the the spiritual powers that are at work, and this is uh, one of my lines from my one of my favorite movies, The Usual Suspects. Mm. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled off is making us believe he doesn't exist, yeah. mm. and I would say that that's particularly true in our uh, spiritual authorities in our world. So, you know, we don't we say, oh, look at those poor primitive people in Africa worried about demons. And then we don't think about, well, there are powers and principalities of greed in America mm. that's pretty, pretty powerful and yep. completely gets overlooked. Yeah. There are some pretty strong demonic power influences of pride in America that never gets addressed because we're so busy focusing on, hey, look at those people, poor people over there, right. who, you know, who are obsessed with demons in their, in their neighborhood. Mm. Uh, we don't realize what Ephesians 6 says, which is our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And that, yeah. so something like racism, greed, right. uh, these are systemic demonic powers. These are powers and principalities of the air. Uh, and, you know, I don't, I'm, you know, my background is both Baptist and Pentecostal. So I'm really mm. confused when it comes to <laughs> things like spiritual matters. Me yeah. too. <laughs> Same. I'm a, I'm a both and, yeah. right? Baptist and Pentecostal. See, I'm Baptist Episcopal. So I'm, I'm confused about <laughs> yeah. liturgy and whether I can raise my hands in worship. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and that's wonderful. And yeah. that shows that, hey, I've got to understand uh, how sin has taken a hold of my life as an individual. That's my old Southern Baptist roots. But I've also got to understand that there are powers and principalities that mm -hmm. I also must contend with. That's my Pentecostal roots. <laughs> um, and so I want to, as one of my mentors once said, I want to fight evil in all its geography, mm -hmm. whether that's in the individual or in the systems and structures or in the narratives and worldviews. Um, God has called us as believers to confront evil, not just in the individual, but also in the systems and structures. I want to confront evil in its proper geography. Mm, that's good. So a a as we kind of begin to wrap up this interview, uh, I, I can imagine that there's going to be somebody listening to this who's heard everything that we've said about lament and the importance yeah. of it in the Christian life. And, and they'll say to themselves, you know, I'm not in charge of a worship service. I can't pick sure. the songs. I can't structure the liturgy on Sunday. So how would sort of your average lay Christian begin to incorporate sure. the the practice and discipline of lament? How do we recover this in our in our own lives? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Practice and discipline. 
right? I mean, it's like all things. Mm-hmm. Practice and discipline yeah. is the is the way we do this. Um, maybe an example of or an illustration of this is that I, I love movies. My son and I, we, our favorite thing is to go watch movies, and we love watching good acting performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's always a you know it's something that that uh, that's uh, fun to watch a good actor. Uh, some of the best actors in our generations are what's called uh, uh, method actors, right. and method actors really get into their character. And uh, it said that, you know, Robert De Niro, if he's playing a mobster in a movie, even when he's off camera, don't right. talk to him because he'll talk back to you like a mobster. Yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis, same thing. When he's, uh, when he's, you know, playing a character in a movie, he stays in that character, you know, for, for the year that he's filming that movie. Mm. Um, so, I mean, if, if like these, you know, actors can do it, uh, in some ways, could we do that in a real way? Mm. Like we are so embedded with a character that our, our, our reflexes, our improvisations, our, our responses are, are emerging out of that character. Uh, and sadly, most of our embedded character is dysfunctional. Most of our embedded character is cultural and, and you know, the reflective of the world and not biblical theological. Uh, so how can we begin to embed and embody and uh, deepen that character in us so deeply that when it comes time to respond, we're responding out of the depth of that character and practice and discipline is the way to do it. Mm. You got to get into the character. And that means uh, reading through the laments more than just once a year, Mm. Um, uh, reading prophetic lament, (laughs) you know, uh, surrounding yourself and embracing these stories. And that's why it's so important. I think that we understand how education is, is formative in that. If you're getting only one side of the story, the triumphalistic narrative and not the story of, for example, the African-American community or the native American, community if you're not reading those stories and empathizing and understanding that narrative um, you're only getting half the story and you're not embodying or embedding these characteristics in your life Mm -hmm. so i would say it's a it's a it's a long-term process there's no one-shot deal here Um, Mm -hmm. how do you begin to for example incorporate lament into your everyday scripture reading that you're not skipping over lamentations or skipping over the prophetic laments in the, in the Psalms. Uh, you're not uh, glossing over the laments of Jesus in the New Testament. And mm. there are laments of Jesus in the New Testament. Right, yeah. uh, are your eyes open to recognize the places where there is suffering in the world and to read the literature that comes out of these places of suffering? Mm. Uh, that's, mm. an, that's an important discipline to say uh, the African-American community has suffered significantly. What are the lessons I can learn from the community that has suffered as much as they have? Um, mm. How is the the spirituals out of the black church informing my spirituality? Mm. Because they're, those spirituals are coming out of a different context than the experience that I'm having. Um, so it's a it's a practice. It's a discipline. Yeah. It's an ongoing engagement with the stories of others, um, with uh, with the literature of others, the lit- liturgy of others, um, be- befriending others. Um, I would say if. Uh, uh, if you're a uh, if you're a white person, you really need to have pastors and spiritual leaders and spiritual influencers from people of color. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So broaden and deepen your spiritual life in such a way that these practices, these disciplines, become a part of who you are, mm. and that can be done with a big event, sure, but it's really done with. Uh, constant repetition. And again, practice is repetition uh, and the rehearsing of these, um, uh, of these narratives that you have not heard before living into them over and over again, not just for the moment, but for the long haul. Mm. 
Well, we're certainly at a time in our nation's history where we desperately need to recover this yep. practice of lament. Amen. And uh, we're Amen. so grateful for uh, the gift you've given the church in prophetic lament. I know that it's helped me uh, learn yes. how to lament and to be sad about uh, things mm. that are truly sad in, in God's wisdom. And so uh, mm. thank you so much for joining us yes. and for sharing your insight. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode with Dr. Sung Chan Ra. If you found this conversation as helpful as we did, do us a favor and rate and subscribe and let your friends know about the show. As a new podcast, that helps us to get the word out. Also, we would love to hear from you. So if you've got a question or even a topic that you'd like covered on the Stone Table, send us an email at thestonetable at baylife.org. Or you can follow us on Instagram and send us a message at the Stone Table Podcast. For Baylife Church, I'm Travis, and this is The Stone Table. Thank you.